What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm talking with Jeffrey Ehrman. He is the brewer blender at Paradox Beer Company in Divide, Colorado. They've been making wild sours and lagers since 2012. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Jensen. I am excited to talk about beer. You're a food guy as well. Uh, I we're definitely gonna have some am. Fun. Definitely going to have some fun. I want to start with a little bit of origin of you. I thought this was very interesting. You were born in Northern California, and you're an Air Force brat, so you were a nomad, moved all over the country. I think it's very interesting because in hospitality and restaurants and breweries, there's a very nomadic, almost Ronin-type culture. Generally, for you, it was very specific. You literally were moving around the country. I'm just interested in kind of how that informed those early years and kind of how you navigated moving from place to place. Well, uh, at first it was a little scary. Um, you know, you got to start over and meet new people uh, everywhere you go. And that was always, as a kid, you know, the younger I was, that was more of a challenge. And then as I got older, I started looking at it as an opportunity. Um, every place I went, I had a chance to reinvent myself, to um, maybe be involved with new friend groups, to be involved in new activities. Um, and it really kind of made me just a broader person in general. I connected with more people from more backgrounds and more places. Um, and it really exposed me also to a lot of culture and food and things that if I had stayed in one place my whole life, which originally, uh, you know, was Northern California, but um, a lot of my growing up was in Ohio, was in the Midwest. I was there for 12 years as well. So, you know, I really got a taste of kind of the different sides of both America and then also spent some time in Europe, um, in Italy and Germany. So I got a chance to kind of see things from outside the country as well. And it really, it was very valuable uh, information to kind of inform my perspective of the world and food and culture and art and life and um, something I really appreciate. something I'm trying to give to my kids as well. So I think it's really important. Yeah, I asked that question because knowing you, it, it seemed like you're just able to jump into a group and get along with people. And, and I was interested in that because I feel like having heard stories like this, people that move around a lot or one or the other, either just real quick to jump in because you're so used to it or you never have a tribe and you're always like protecting yourself a little bit. So I'm, I'm interested in that, that dynamic. And, and so, yeah, yeah I, 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 I think like it was, that. it was the, it was first the not jumping in thing for a long time. Um, I'd say until I was like mid teens. And then I just kind of was like, well, seeing it again as an opportunity to, you know, these people are going to like me. They're going to not know that I used to fall on my skateboard all the time and come to school injured and, you know, all kinds of whatever, you know, things that I thought was embarrassing. Um, they don't know that stuff. So it's a chance to start over. And I, I guess that's what I do now even is all, all people know of me now, especially here in Colorado is the beer thing. The fact that you even know about my food past is kind of a, not too many people even know about that, you know? And I think it was an opportunity for me to be like, okay, these are all new friends. This is an all new tribe, like you're saying. I like that term. Um, and I saw it as an opportunity to, wow, this guy is a, you know, interesting dynamic brewer that wants to do fun things. And, you know, I, I guess it was, again, I saw it as an opportunity and that's, that's why the jump in attitude now. Yeah, the human dynamic of hospitality is so important to me. And so I'm always fascinated in how we navigate 
the human side of of how we see the world and approach it approach like you said the tribe or your craft yeah, and and I, so I, I think being a server for many years serving at restaurants um i can walk up to any group you know and approach them and say guys how's it going i'm going to chef like you know whatever like that's real easy for me that's second nature for me so i think if you can't do that you'll never be able to serve people that's yeah, very true and i think that's there's some value in thinking about people through the lens of hospitality in the brewing industry, because there's room for more of that in the brewing industry. So I'm oh, I completely super agree. interested in that. All right. We always go backwards and talk about some, some first jobs in hospitality. Sure. And you, you were in uh, Belleville, Illinois at 15 at the pasta house. Super yeah. interested. The adolescent years, they inform so much. You're, you're at the pasta house. Tell me a little bit about how that set some groundwork for kind of you as a as an artisan, as a as a food and beverage guy, restaurant brewing guy. Yeah, so I got thrown right into it. My brother was working there and had for about two years, I think, before I started. And he kind of vouched for me and brought me in, introduced me to the owners. And they initially just threw me as a bar back. Um, and this was at 15 years old, which I probably shouldn't have been doing. Um <laughs> And then also bussing tables and greeting and uh, cleaning. It was pretty much a catch-all job. I was the new kid on the staff. And it was nice because it gave me a chance to see a bunch of jobs, uh, including dishwashing. I didn't say dishwashing. I did that too. And so I got a chance to see kind of all the entry-level, lower-level jobs um, and figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. Uh, what I did like was that it was quite a ragtag group of really interesting uh, people uh, that I had never met this kind of people before um, from all different backgrounds, kind of like you said, nomadic. Um, and it was a chance to kind of, I don't know, I hadn't really been in that world too much. And so it was a real education in that way as well. I was addicted right away to the late nights, uh, cash in your pocket. I mean, I would help people out, you know, do a really good job in their section or whatever. And they'd throw me a $50 bill. And here I was 15 years old, 16 years old, going home with two, three hundred dollars in my pocket. And it, it was kind of fun. It was exciting. And, you know, I, I kind of got addicted to it early on because of that, like instant gratification of, wow, I was really helpful. I was really friendly with that group and boom, cash in my pocket. So you were drawn uh, to the island of misfit toys. I bet for like an Air Force brat, there was a little bit of everything is, is high and tight. Right. And so being kind of fast and loose was was alluring to you. It was the, yes, the dark I, side. Definitely. Oh, man. And the, the swearing that went on in the in the kitchen and the, just the attitude in general there was unlike anything I'd ever been around because I had I had gone to private school and I was raised pretty religious. And so a lot of my background is uh, and military, like you said. So a lot of my background is very structured. And it was one of the most unstructured environments I'd ever been around. And I, I absolutely loved it. And they thought I was great because I was uh, very attention to detail and, you know, very friendly and came in there with a good attitude every day. So they were like, you know, this kid's not jaded yet. It's kind of great to have him around. And so everybody kind of liked me and it meant, you know, like I said, more money in my pocket. So it worked out really well. Yeah. I love, I love hearing that. I love hearing that. So this is, this is funny reading a little bit about you uh selfishly i just had this this nostalgic moment when you when you wrote that you worked at a soup plantation as a young yes. kid in rancho bernardo california they have gone the way of the dodo but i just want you to tell everybody listening a little about soup plantation because my siblings and i 
went there as kids and it is it was an institution and it's like nothing else and just thinking back on it it was so visceral for me tell tell the people listening who don't know i guarantee about soup plantation so the idea, I think originally was just to be the biggest salad bar you'd ever see. And I think they shifted gears later and did quite a, more, quite a few more things. But uh, initially, it's just a two-sided uh, build-your-own salad with, oh, I want to say 25, maybe 30 selections of things to put on your salad. And uh, it means you feed a lot of people. So sometimes it's lines out the door hitting that two-sided salad bar coming in. And it's really a churn and burn type restaurant. I initially was in much more of a slow paced candle lit um kind of you know the food comes out when it comes out kind of restaurant and that's not how this worked this was we're out of this we're out of that and they would quickly have to prep you know to keep up with these huge crowds so that was another side of the restaurant business that was quite an education um a lot of really hard working people there uh i had never seen that before uh, we had a whole crew and this was in southern california we had a whole crew in the back of Mexican guys that would come in like really early in the morning and cook everything from scratch, all these soups, all the salad prep, everything. And I got to work alongside them and was just completely impressed by their work ethic and ability to improvise. One of the things I always like to tell people about is how when they chop onions, they would uh, wrap saran wrap around their heads so that they wouldn't cry. <laughs> And so it's something I still do to this day. If I can't find anything else to do and I'm chopping up old onions that are making me cry, I'll just reach for the uh, saran wrap and wrap it around my head. You can always count on kitchen guys for the like MacGyver hack. Oh, so much MacGyvering there. They were the best. Incredible. Um, We did catering too. And so they would, uh, you know, teach me things on site that, you know, were just amazing stuff. They were, they were great guys. And just, that was probably the the biggest lesson there was every time I actually got to help the kitchen crew. I also worked out on the floor. So there was a a lot of, you know, serving and hospitality stuff too, but just the The sheer uh, volume of those places. Yeah. That's, that was the real lesson there was the volume. I mean, it's unbelievable. You're on a cruise ship pretty much. That's what it seemed like sometimes. And it's very interesting because it started out as soup and salad, you know, which, which sounds like, wow, that sounds healthy. All you can eat buffet it did turn into a full-on buffet of all the things. Yes. And I just remember it being intense, and it just was like herding cattle. And eventually it was lots and lots of gravy on everything. And it was like the epitome of the all-you-can-eat, like, fat American. It was was crazy Yeah, I think it was. Initially it really was launched as a healthy concept. And it, it did get away from that. I mean, cookies and brownies and ice cream and pizza. And yeah, it just kind of, oh, pasta. They had the pasta bar as well. They really took a left turn and eventually just became a, yeah, all you can eat, everything. It led to the, the obesity of the 80s and 90s in a major way. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I uh, love that. All right. We always like to dig into people's uh, pantries a little bit. And I love this. It was just all condiments. Not, not one condiment of any type was enough for you. You said you have an assortment of butters, mayos, mustards, and basically all condiments. What is yeah. it about? Who has more than one type of mayonnaise and, and butter, first of all? Mustard, I could see. And, and what yeah. is it about having all those little condiments that, that like really float your boat? I think traveling the world, it gets you stuck on these regional products. Uh, and the, the fact that I've gotten to do a little bit of traveling as a kid. And then again, you know, later in life, I've gotten to do a little bit as well, Europe and 
and across America because we get to distribute to some of those places. Um, I just get into these regional products and I can't find anything like it and I get them again. So I'll find out, find them on a website and order them and I put them in my fridge here. And it just makes it to where I can kind of travel, you know, if I want to have that particular mayo or that particular mustard, I can travel to that country and have it for that meal. I love Belgium specifically. And because of that, I have several Belgian mayonnaise uh, varieties all the time. And I love doing Belgian frites and making Belgian food and then eating it with the mayonnaise. It just kind of completes the meal. It's a richer, yolkier mayonnaise. But for like everyday stuff, I like best foods. I put that on turkey sandwich and stuff like that. So I have a few different varieties for different things. Um, Koopy mayonnaise is one of my all-time favorites. That's got uh, MSG in it, which is fantastic stuff. I know everybody hates it, but uh, it's, it stands for make so good. It's yeah, I, I agree with that. I have no problem. I literally today was telling people that they're like, is that what it stands for? I was like, well, monosodium glutamate, but yeah, it, yeah. it stands for make so good. Come on. And awesome stuff. It's magical. And when Cantonese style Chinese restaurants were coming into vogue in the 50s, 60s and into the 70s, there was MSG on the table. It looks like cocaine. There's a little white yeah. powder. Oh, you yeah. could sprinkle on it. Flavor and, up. Uh, I think it's I think it's super great. I, I love everything that you're saying about how how sense memory is so important and you're bringing yourself back to a place that yeah, has I love like profound so feeling. Much. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's really part of it is I can't really afford to hop over to Paris all the time or whatever, but I can have the mustard that I had when I was there because it's in my fridge right now. So I, I really appreciate that kind of stuff. I kind of use condiments in that way. And and the reason I got into butters, um, I'm a cheese person forever and ever and ever. And kind of butters has been like a, a side of cheese that I've moved into recently because someone introduced me to cultured butter and I don't exactly remember when I had it for the first time. Um, but this was probably a decade ago. And I, ever since then, I've kind of gotten into the idea of sourdough breads and cultured butters and all those things kind of being like the old world foods and how they're fuller in flavor. And it's kind of a dangerous way to make food. So people don't like doing it on an industrial scale generally. Um, but it's fantastic. And I like those kind of richer European higher fat butters and then especially cultured butters as well. So yeah, I always have to have a few of those around. But then you have your utility things where I want to fry something in butter. So then I've just got some, you know, regular butter, Kerrygold. <laughs> we, we can hang out and eat butter and mayonnaise anytime, my friend. Yeah, any that's, that's, yeah time. exactly. See, super into okay. it and, and you're talking about the belgian frites i actually think i actually think the dutch style frites might be my favorite their their mayonnaise i really like i like the size of their fries and i like they put raw onion on there and yeah. they all you know eat them in a cone or a basket but it was always about the the mayonnaise i grew up yep. in in germany it was there from two till seven and it was all about i was all about currywurst and and pommes frites with with mayonnaise it was they asked you rot or weiss did you want red or white do you want ketchup and or that's mayonnaise? actually where that's where i got started doing it too was germany i grown up in germany as a kid eating pommes frites was where i got i remember eating them by the pool like getting out of the pool dripping wet going to the snack bar and getting pommes frites in germany and that was like one of my best childhood memories ever and so they're a way, I think they're chasing, a way of life i'm still chasing that i think yeah even you talking about it, I'm salivating thinking of that memory. So like yeah. our sense memory is so tied to our experience. And I love that, especially our sense of smell is the, the most tied to memory. And we know that your sense of taste comes through your sense of smell. So just smelling 
a smell and you're instantly back at grandma's house type thing. It's such a real experience. And I absolutely love that. It's why I'm such a taster of beer of food is because I, I want to have those experiences and tie them to those experiences. So I talk a lot. You and I have talked about how, you know, things like, I don't think of the, the expression of pineapple when I'm tasting, say, one of your beers. I think about having pineapple in Mexico when it's 100 degrees and a guy walking down the beach selling pina and biting into a pineapple when you're half drunk going, this is the best pineapple I've ever had in my life. That is such a real experience, right? That falls right into one of my biggest philosophies about enjoying food and beer is making it personal. I feel like as soon as you make it personal, as soon as you have an experience that's not a shared experience, as in pineapple, we've all had pineapple. Yes, this tastes like pineapple. I get it. That's a shared experience. That's different. That's different than saying I had this personal experience and I'm tying it to this experience I'm having now. I always think if people can do that, that it's going to be a lasting, you know, major connection to that product or to that, you know, item or whatever it is. But um, I, I try to do that with beer for sure. So I'm, I'm glad that you kind of do things the same way. And I think people that are really passionate about food and beer and um, art and music and things like that, that's what they do is they find ways to make it personal, to make it something from their own life. So that is, that is a great segue in the way that we, we think similarly in those experiences. We also think very similarly in our love of salt, which brings us perfectly to our best served on ice breaker game, which I am calling salt lick. We're going to nice. talk a little bit about salt, my friend, because I yeah. am fascinated with the use of salt as a chef. I am even more fascinated these days spending so much time with brewers and brewing, doing all the collaboration beers, because I think if you are looking for the output of aroma and flavor, salt is such a catalyst to it. And the yep. fact that we don't use salt more in beers is something that I know you are pushing yourself and challenging yourself. And I want to see more brewers doing it. So I want to celebrate the use of salt and we're going to play a little game, some random trivia about salt that I thought was super fascinating. Excellent. So we're just going to geek out a little bit on salt. That sound good? Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. So right away, I was like, I was like, what is the value of salt? And I found all these interesting things where salt was used to pay taxes and it was currency in different places. And I was like, it makes sense. Like, I'm, I'm there. Salt is so, so valuable. So it got me thinking about what is the most expensive salt in the world currently? And I'm going to ask you per pound is the most expensive salt in the world, $50 a pound, a hundred dollars a pound or over $250 a pound. What would you say? Oh, um, totally random, hmm. but man, it was interesting. See, I, I, maybe I'm not using the most expensive salt in the world, but the most expensive salt I've been able to get my hands on is that Japanese Amabito no Moshio salt, which is uh, they brush it off of seaweed. So they hang seaweed to dry on the beach and then they brush the precipitated salt off the outside of the seaweed. So of course you're getting glutamates and other precipitated things off the outside of it. So it's an awesome salt. And I pay, I think I pay $25 for 10 ounces. So I don't, I'm certainly not paying anything close to what any of those you said. So I'm going to guess the highest one because I'm sure there's some really awesome salt that I don't know about. Dude, it's fucking crazy. $272 a pound. Nice. And what is it? For Amethyst Bamboo 9X salts from Korea. 
It's like, God damn. It's a gray salt that they pack into bamboo and then smoke. Oh, I've seen that process. Like, okay. Like, like eight times at like 1500 yeah. degrees. And it basically just intensifies the salt. It was super cool. And uh, they smoke it over pine wood packed into bamboo. I just was completely geeking out. I was like, you know, who's going to yeah. be super interested in this is, is Jeff, because this is yeah, just so crazy. It's a, it's a gray salt. So they pack it wet. It sounds like, and then they probably get more of it to crystallize by doing that process. Like, Steven and then that's exactly it. It melts. Yeah. And that's then they, great they form it into these cool little almost clear crystals that well, are these like little rocks now. I, I know <laughs> literally I'm like I'm like I need a sponsor of this podcast exactly. to, I know. start sending us some of these salts super fascinating I thought it was really really cool I, I had seen that process somewhere but I didn't know the name of it and I didn't know that it was that expensive that's pretty nuts yeah you we can't afford it Jeff well we'll, know, we'll have to get Tokyo some has salt stores and i thought that was fascinating i think i need to go to a, a salt store well i love this you, you you're already going to know the answer to this which, which oh. was clear from your last statement the question right. number two was there is a country in the world that has over four thousand styles of salts my question was <laughs> going to be is it i don't know a korea b uh, the united states or c japan yeah. Go ahead and throw a guess out there. It might be Japan. Might be Japan. And literally, <laughs> I was the Moshio salt, which you specifically mentioned. Love that Yeah, it's stuff. got that Hondawara seaweed, which is super interesting stuff yeah. in and of itself. 2,500-year-old process of doing that. They've been in the game, the salt game, for a minute. I just love that stuff. I think products with a history like that are just so fascinating to me. I, I love it. It's, it's so cool that it would be that committed to something so simple for like generations i think is is fascinating to me and now i want everybody to buy this salt now that i know that you're getting your hands on it where are you getting the moshio salt oh i i order it and it's actually sold directly by the company through amazon and they're so cool if you post that you're using it on your instagram they'll like like your post and stuff and it's this really small company they're great so definitely All right. uh, follow everyone follow listening. Go Instagram get your well. Moshio salt. You will. Yeah. You, you're going to love it. The it's, one they sell is an Amabito no Moshio. And yep. it's, uh, it's in little 10 ounce bags that are like drawstring kind of burlap looking bags with Japanese writing on the front. That's a whole nother podcast about the packaging of Japanese products, which is <sighs> just unbelievably <laughs> Again, interesting. I'm a fan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm unbelievably interesting. Quite a bit. That was actually, maybe we can touch on this too, but. That was my intro to the kind of buying and tasting world. I got a chance to run a sake bar that was part of a sushi bar. And, and man, sakes are amazing. And the packaging is just a whole nother level. They do such beautiful artwork on the front of their bottles. So You can always count on the Japanese to just do stuff yeah. right. The Japanese motto is take what somebody else does and do it better. So some of the yeah. best French bakeries in the world are in Tokyo. Right? It's, yep. it's such a fascinating part of their culture. And man, salt. Whole nother podcast. We can talk about nothing but salt. Question yeah, number three. Salt. Bring me back Dude. for the salt cast. All of it. All of it. <laughs> so salts are used a lot in brewing, mostly for water chemistry, right? You have gypsum, potassium yep. chloride, Epsom yep. salts. But there's also a salted style of beer. You do things way outside the box when it comes to salt. But Goza is the German style of beer known for uh, the salt additions as well as uh, coriander. That style of beer, where is it originally from in Germany? Is it from 
Gosler, I, be- I believe Leipzig it's Leipzig. Yeah. Or Berlin. Oh, I was supposed to. Oh, I didn't know I was getting choices. So I was like, Leipzig, I believe. Well, here's what's interesting. Leip- Leipzig is very known for it. It was like yeah. very invoked, but it wasn't actually from Leipzig. They actually, ah. it's from the name comes from the city of Gosler, where it's actually originally from. Nice. That was another one. I was like, oh, what's a good Goza question? I was like, oh, let's talk about Leipzig. But that's where it really became popular and some of the most well-known brands within that space. They've been making it since the 13th century. I did not realize it was that old. And it was a a spontaneous That's what kind of fascinated me about that style right away was Germany's, you know, got their strict, or they used to have their strict rules about beer, the Reinheitsgebot. And they allowed a few regions to keep making these traditional beers that were outside of those rules. And that was one of them. They allowed those guys to in Leipzig um, at the time, I believe, because maybe the style had kind of moved to there at that time. I don't know. Um, but they allowed them to keep making that beer, even though it was outside the rules. Yeah. And so they kind of pioneered the process of kettle souring yep. and Leipzig was, was known for that. Yep. And, that was interesting to me that actually, and it makes sense that originally it was spontaneous. And so a lot of the bacteria and souring came actually, and there's a lot of PDO in old styles as well, came from the spontaneous. And then they just wanted to be German and start to control the process more, yep. right? They're not Belgian, they're Germans. They're like, we're going to do this German thing. And we want it to be the same every time. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. It has yeah. to be the same every time. There could be yeah. no variance is allowed within that, even in an off style like this so that was super fascinating yeah as well so awesome game of salt lick man could we geek <laughs> out and people listening are either super into it or going why the fuck are these guys still talking about salt i um, learned some things that was fun i absolutely love it all right well let's get into your story a little bit more uh, you mentioned specifically that something people don't know about you is that you were in a noise prog metal band and i wanted to start there because i know there's somebody that you want to talk about that was really instrumental and i think it's fascinating to talk about somebody completely outside of food beverage hospitality but somebody that really crystallized creativity for you and and being able to see a direct correlation between your creativity now as a brewer and blender coming from a completely different place i think that is really interesting so i want to touch on that a little bit so let's talk about Let's, let's talk about that time and, and kind sure, of sure. how that progressive metal band kind of stamped something in you as a creative. Yeah, so it, it kind of all kicked off with uh, my best friend in high school, uh, Mike Bagley. Uh, he and I were just kind of fanboys going to every concert we possibly could. Um, mostly heavier stuff, but all kinds of stuff, really. Um, and just after doing that for a few years and getting to uh, our senior year of high school, we decided to start making music. Um, he had already been playing guitar at home for a while and I had a background in singing. And so we kind of built a band uh, based around that, got brought in a drummer friend of ours and uh, a bass player friend and just kind of did the garage jamming out thing for a while. Um, but really the idea of the band from the start was to do something different, something we hadn't heard before, something that was maybe on the edge of metal um, and noisy and loud, but wasn't really uh, sounding like any of the bands we were necessarily listening to. I'd say the one band that we were really inspired by, at least their progressive attitude, was a band called Candiria. Uh, They're from Brooklyn, New York, and they had a jazz drummer who'd been playing jazz for like 15 years before he even started the band. And so they, they really pushed this kind of fusion concept of 
you know, what if heavy music had different time signatures and um, what if the singer was screaming, but he was also sort of rapping and singing. And, and so it kind of opened up the concept of making just artistic metal that was maybe kind of, I don't know, a little weird too, intentionally. Um, and we had a really fun time doing that together because he was such a good partner to um, bounce things off of. It was sort of a improv attitude of yes and, yes and constantly. And and so, you know, having somebody like that who saw the vision the same way you did and um, <laughs> saw the opportunities. Uh, we had such a good time playing with bands that, because we were so many, uh, we had so many connections to other bands, so many friends who were in bands that we would get on shows where that kind of band that we were wouldn't normally get on. We got to play for, uh, to open for like Warrant, for instance, um, which was kind of fun. Uh, and just punk rock bands and, uh, you know, a lot of different reggae and stuff like that where they wouldn't put this kind of band on, but because we were, we were doing something completely outside the box and most of our fans were musicians because of that. Um, it gave us opportunities to kind of, uh, shock people with what we were doing and that was really the idea of it too was to present something um, that at first was shocking and then later became like uh, the understanding was there of okay this is a new direction they're trying to take they're trying to push this genre outside and actually I would say now there are many many bands doing that this was back in oh boy this would have been like 97 I think is when we got started maybe late 96 was when we started kind of rocking out together and so I, I've certainly seen metal move in that direction of um, progression, uh, accepting other styles. Uh, a lot of my lyrics were very uh, self-deprecating, um, were very uh, introverted, and um, were not about what was going on in metal at the time, which was about being tough and who was the coolest and that kind of stuff. And, I've seen metal go that way ever since that time too. And we kind of saw that. We thought it was going to go there, sort of become self-aware. And uh, we wanted to be part of that. And so that was really the original idea of the band was kind of, let's push that direction, you know, push that point of view with our understanding of, because we were big metalheads. Um, but we also love rap and a lot of other music too. And we wanted to make sure that was all part of the project. So it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And especially having uh, him involved the whole time, we had a few members kind of come and go, but it was always Mike and I. So, um, you know, he was definitely a, a key role in somebody being like, your ideas are valid. Uh, let's push this thing as far as we can. Let's have fun with it. And if we like it, then it's good. You know, and I, I guess I, I kind of take that into everything I do now. That uh, it's, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of ego, I guess. Um, but I think that's important. I think it's, uh, you have to kind of trust yourself. And when people say that, I think part of trusting yourself is trusting your knowledge and your instincts and, you know, maybe even feeling like you might know what's good and what's not so good. And so I, I, I really attribute that to being in a band and having those live experiences of testing our material and, you know, and recording and all the things we got to do really kind of gave me the foundation for who I am as a creative person now. Yeah, trust and confidence are, are two words that I kind of bring up a lot when you are working within a team, when you have a you know, support system of people. And I think that dynamic is really, really valuable to have, that you had trust and confidence in each other and in yourselves between you and Mike is really important. That definitely 
rings when I when I hear you talking is it's such a valuable thing to have somebody else that you trust to be able to bounce creativity off of. So it's clearly that that was really, really important to the two yeah. of you. The other thing that really stood out listening to you was that you are just a style bender. It's something in your Always. beers that's very, very clear. You talk about, you know, you're basically like, fuck style. I, yes. just, I just don't brew style. I, I have I've literally said those words. <laughs> yes, 100%. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was quoting you without remembering if that's exactly yeah. what you said, but yes, yeah. the sentiment I've heard from you time and time again. And so I, I liked hearing this because it was very clear, just even from reading that you were in a band like that and hearing what you're talking about, it's really, really important to be able to understand what it's like to be able to meld together thoughtfully and creatively, you know, that you're not forcing two things together because you're like, yeah. have such a big ego and go, fuck it, I'm going to do it because I can it's because it's, there's some kind of natural progression that you see that maybe other people don't. I'd love for you to touch on that a little bit more. Is like sure. the, the ability to be able to style bend in a very thoughtful way and also maybe how Mike helped influence that or po- prod you and push you in that direction or support sure. you in that way. Yeah, and I, what I'd say is a big impetus for that is a subversion of expectations. So kind of setting people up for one thing and then delivering something that they did not expect at all. And so that was something we wanted to do from the start in our creative process was to even write our songs um, to where they're like, oh yeah, here we go. Here's, this is gonna be what I think it's gonna be and let's get ready to go pit to this. And then we would pretty much uh, give them something completely different, break the song down, go acoustic on it or whatever. Because we, <laughs> we really didn't like the idea of like giving people something that they expected, something that they were accustomed to, or something that they could even get comfortable with. Because I feel like sometimes if you get too comfortable, then your senses get dulled and you're not really taking it in, like you're missing things. And so we wanted to keep people kind of shaking them up the whole time. And I think constantly delivering something that was not what they were expecting, not what they had even, I don't know, maybe even wanted. Um, And that was kind of the fun thing was, realizing that it wasn't about, we didn't really want fans. I mean, we got fans and we did shows and we toured and we recorded albums and whatever, but it was never about that. It was always seen as an art project and seen as a, you know, how can we rudder this musical ship in a direction that we want it to go? And I'll tell you, that's what I've carried into beer is how do I have a voice as big as I can so that the, um, you know, the freedom and the opportunity that I say in beer is shared with other brewers, is shared with other beer consumers. You know, um, it is that same perspective of how do I, (laughs) how do I make it an opportunity for other people? Like I see it as an opportunity. And that's why beer was so exciting to me is I just saw it as a little bit of sleep, um, a little bit of sleep at the wheel and not everybody that's insulting to say. Um, but so much, uh, that, People were like, well, you know, I just kind of show up at work and read the clipboard and it's the same thing I brewed yesterday. And, you know, I kind of hate that and I'm not really enjoying my job or whatever. And, and it's like, well, you know, I don't think that's what the consumer wants either. I don't think they want the same thing every time. Maybe, maybe subvert their expectations a little bit. Maybe make a brown ale that's not a brown ale. You know, maybe take things in a different direction because you can. You're the creative force here. And just empowering people in that way. And that was really the idea of the band as well. And, and Mike would completely agree with this. Is, and that's why we were so many uh, friends were in bands, uh, was that we felt like our role was to empower them to feel free. Empower them to 
do something that they wouldn't normally even think of doing because, well, Kamala does that. You know, we would do stupid stuff. Like, for instance, um, when we would play our shows, I would show up to the show usually dressed as, like, preppy as possible. And these would be at, like, punk venues and whatever. And I would wear, like, sweaters and um, I'd wear some Oxford shoes and intentionally not look like the singer of a noise metal band and the band would set up and they would tune up and they would you know start playing or whatever and then at the last moment I'd jump up on the stage and grab the mic and start singing and you know that that was supposed to be the initial like that guy that we were like why the hell is he here is now up on stage singing and that was always fun and by the end of the set we would never end a set without falling down so everyone would end the songs on the ground with their instrument often off the stage laying on the ground somewhere and again it was like trying to give people something that maybe they hadn't seen before and an experience that they might actually remember because it's not it's not that duplicated fast food experience and and i really felt like that was important both then and and in anything that you do artistically is to like make sure that there, there's enough of you in it that it's not a duplicatable experience or what value does it have? I feel like even this is getting off a tangent, but as we get closer and closer to AI, we have to realize how valuable the human element of anything is, you know, of any creation is. Of course we can use computers to help us, but there's so much value in the human experience and human knowledge. And I just feel like that it's important to make sure that we're not doing, you know, fast food music or fast food beers because we can do better. We are human, we are complex, human beings with complex experiences and I always encourage people to be free like that and to share those so that's what it's yeah, always been about I like uh, I like how thoughtfully you fuck with people I think it's great <laughs> that's, that's a good way to put it I it's like how you very distill my intentions so well but yes that is exactly it yeah just four words thoughtfully fuck with people I think yeah. it's really great because it's it, the truth it it just gets people thinking from a slightly potentially skewed angle that can inform anything. And I think going against the grain can a lot of times like have going with the grain, have more purpose as well. Cause you don't always need to go against the grain for the sake of going against the grain, but sometimes challenge, challenging those preconceived notions can allow for a depth of understanding or contextualizing those things or being able to crystallize that. Yeah, there is something to be said about, the simplicity of that style yeah and you you had to to challenge it to understand that so i like that because i like how thoughtful you are about it versus and, and just it trying to place, be shock and awe yeah it comes from a place of respect and that's that's just it is i actually respect their ability to take what i give them and own it and turn it into something beyond what i could even think of you know it's more like you know i just want to shine a light is all on the possibilities and then they can take that and put that through their own filter and something even more amazing is going to come out the other end. Yeah. And I, I like how a lot of your philosophies have been pretty much embedded in you since a very young age, just Definitely. those first experiences in kitchens, then the experience in high school in a band, it's very clear that there's a direct line. The connecting the dots is pretty simple for who you are now as a brewer why you go about your craft in the way that you do because you've kind of been doing that your whole life now it's this is just the manifestation of it this is the end product that you kind of have found your tribe back to that word within the brewing community and so i really want to spend some time i know it's important to you to talk about paradox 
And that really gave you your entree into brewing. And it's basically, you've been at one brewery for a long time. So you got the other direction. You were so nomadic. Yeah. Now you are a pillar in divide Colorado and I've created something really special and unique there kind of off center as well. So let's, let's talk about some of the humans that, that you get the opportunity to work with day in day out and what you all have built there. So when I, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about initially why I even moved to Colorado. Um, my dad had purchased a house in Lake George and, uh, it was going to sit empty because he was still working and wasn't able to retire as soon as he'd thought. Um, and so he asked if I could go out and take care of that house for a couple of years. And I jumped at the chance to move to beautiful Colorado and it's a gigantic house and it's on a huge property and it's pretty cool. Um, so I got to go do that for a little while. And then when things were kind of winding down there and I had kind of done what I could do um, in that situation, uh, I was looking for an opportunity kind of for my next move. And of course, it's like I could get back into food again. Um, but I really you know, it had some kind of not the best uh, situations in, in my restaurant career, dealt with some real shady characters over time. So I was really looking for a, a new thing um, that took my skills, kind of like you had said, uh, and connected them to a new project. And I love beer and had been home brewing. Um, my, my background before beer was doing bread. So I was doing sourdough bread. And that really feeds right into, you know, using some of those same microbes for doing sour beers. Um, and so when I was in the area, I, I of course went around and tried all the beer uh, that was made locally that I could get my hands on. And some of the beers that really resonated with me were um, from Trinity uh, down in Colorado Springs and from Paradox. So I, I talked to both owners um, and the guys at Paradox right away were like, yeah, uh, we could use some help packaging if you don't mind coming in for a packaging day. Um, and so I was able to come in and just drink beer and hang out and, and package and tell stories and jokes and, and really get to know them on that kind of base level initially, which was nice. Um, it wasn't really like a job. It was more like, I'm just the guy that comes in, you know, for a couple of days, every couple of weeks and, and helps on the packaging line. So uh, that was a really nice way to get to know them. I brought them some of my homebrew beers initially. And, uh, and, that, and that was Jeff and Brian, the guys that started Paradox. Um, and they were really interested in the beers I was making. Um, and I, I of course wanted to work with some of the barrels that they had. And so, uh, it was definitely a mutual interest in, uh, where I was going with my food type stuff and where they were going with their barrel aged beers. I just felt like that was a good, a good move for me, um, with the skills that I had. Uh, once they kind of found out my background, it became much more than just working with the barrels. I got to do uh, sales work, marketing work, um, and then even concept creation, recipe creation. Um, they've really let me be a part of every possible part of the brewery, which, I, I, you know, I don't know that most people would do. I, I know a lot of people in other situations that are really held in by their role, but we're such a small team um, that if you show initiative, um, they, they will really give you the reins, uh, allow you to fail or succeed, and support you either way. They're really great guys in that way, uh, and they've supported me hundred percent for the last seven and a half years. Uh, and it's been fantastic because I really feel like at this point, I kind of, like I used to know in the restaurant business, uh, top to bottom, I kind of feel like I know that in the brewery business at this point. Um, there's some things that they handle that I still don't at all. They're, they're, uh, deep in the paperwork and taxes and stuff. So I don't really deal with that. But when it comes to packaging, distribution, beer production, sales, um, retail, pretty much all that stuff, um, 
I've really gotten to get my hands into all of it. And it's been an amazing education. Uh, kind of what I was looking for too. That was my initial thought was, you know, whether things work out there long-term or not, I'm going to just dive in and learn everything I can because these guys are willing to teach me. Uh, and a lot of people aren't. Um, some people in other brewery situations that I've talked to, it's kind of like a figure it out for yourself and they're either on their phone Googling something or, you know, asking somebody else at another brewery how they do it or something else because they're not being taught on site how to do things. And we certainly don't do that at Paradox. We kind of have our way of doing things and it's, it's, uh, it's probably a little guarded, but you know, if you're a trusted person there, then it's, it's something that we share. Um, and it's really, really become valuable stuff to me. So. Yeah, talk a little bit about, about really who these guys are as far sure. as leaders, because I'm really interested in that. Definitely. And their ability to balance you out, their ability to empower somebody like you and to like let yeah. you flourish as an artist, as a creator, and also maybe like pulling in the reins every once in a while going, easy, Jeff, you know, like I need that all the time. Like the, just and they're that good balancing. At, they're good at all that. And I, I know where it comes from. This is their third brewery um, that they've started. So they started their first brewery down in Trinidad. Uh, it was kind of huge during the the natural gas boom that they had down there and then things just sort of fizzled and they had some partner issues and it just didn't end up working out um and then they moved on and opened a brewery in woodland park there with the uh, um, beer works right in the middle of town and same thing it just just didn't work out but every time it was like lessons learned uh and i think they're those kind of people they they really take away from you know, each situation, well, we're not doing that again, well, we're not doing that again, you know, kind of an attitude. And that's really what birthed Paradox was sort of a, uh, you know, attitude of we've learned our lessons, how do we apply those in this situation? Uh, how do we empower people to help us do this so that um, we don't carry it on our own shoulders completely? And I, I really think that's been their attitude of leadership from the beginning is find good people, uh, you know, empower them to do as much as they possibly can when it doesn't work out. That's when you step in and say, okay, this obviously isn't the role for you. Um, but we have several other roles that you can still uh, you know, maintain. And, and that's often what we've done with, you know, lots of different staff that we've had. And it's been very, uh, again, freeing for me. I think they know who I am well enough to make sure that I feel uh, that supported freedom to create, to have new ideas that actually happen. And uh, they see the importance of that. So in line with that, we've gotten to start spontaneous program uh, where we have a cool ship in the back because I, I love spontaneous beers. Um, we've gotten to do a Solera program with a, um, a farmhouse ale that we never really repitch yeast. It's almost like a sourdough starter program. So all those things that I've always wanted to do that are my favorite things in, in beer making, we do all those things and it's because they've supported uh, me and my ideas along the way. And it's not like it's just my idea either. You know, I'll, I'll come to them and say, this is something I really want to do. And of course they've got a better version of it. They've like, Oh yeah, that's cool. But what if we built a separate shed for that cool ship? And then what if we lined the cool ship with staves from barrels? So they're always able to take my ideas to the next level. And it becomes that not only trusted thing, but like a collaborative every time, every idea is very collaborative and that's the kind of leaders they are. It's their company, um, but they certainly let me hold the wheel occasionally, and that's that's big on them. I think I, I think they have a lot of faith in me, and then they also, um, again, they have enough ego to trust themselves. 
and trust their own decisions and trusting me. So it's, it's a good situation and we're good partners for sure. Yeah. It goes back to that trust and confidence. Very clear. Having seen all of you in action, it very much is a meritocracy. I, I, I see that for sure. Yeah. Actually, it's noticeable having seen you guys at Fest, having come up and done a collaboration beer with you yep. at your spot, which I'll give a shout out. Best collaboration beer ever. We had an amazing time tasting barrels, brewing a fresh beer, and then you made us fucking lunch. Like we had pizzas and stuff. I was like, this is amazing. Jeff is like doing all the work and he's cooking for us. You're getting, you're getting the full Jeff. If you, get food and, uh, was, if you get food and beer, you're getting the full Jeff. Set the bar high. Now every time I'm like, I'm like, what are we going to do on brew day? I was like, oh, that's, that, that sounds fine. But you yeah. know what Jeff did? Yeah. So it, it was really great. It's very interesting because really I actually didn't know the situation coming up there and, sure. and all three of you. I thought all three of you were like equal owners in the, in the brewery. That just like is the thought that popped into my head, seeing the dynamic. You and know, and I, it's because they was let amazing. me act that way. And I think everyone just assumes that too. Um, you know, and I don't, it's not because anything I say, it's just that, you know, I, I am involved in the decisions. They keep me involved. They keep me informed. I'm a part of, of what we do, especially on the, the beer side when it comes to making beer. Like I said, they handle they handle the government and they handle the city and they handle all that stuff, which is fantastic. I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that. But on the beer side, I'm, you know, an equal partner. So if it sounds that way, I'm, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And it was very clear that they were as excited to be a part of the collaboration brew day as anybody. Yeah. Which I think is super, super fascinating. Yeah. So. That's, that's the other thing is that they, they haven't fizzled. They still love beer. They still love the process. They still love the people. So they're not, you know, you know, even though it's project three, they're not jaded owners. They're, they're involved, they're in touch and they drink everything. They test every single beer. So they're on top of it. It's important. All right. So we like to end as I like, I'm choking on some beer right now. Uh, We like to end every segment with some words to live by a little mantra. And you told us question the answers. What does that mean to you? Well, that means that the world is fed to us as children uh, as it's all figured out, um, and it's not. And I think there's so much opportunity in the in the gray areas, and that's why I say question the answers. I think we're told that uh, the answers are solid, they're known, uh, it's all figured out, the rules are set, and I think that as soon as you start questioning those, you're going to find a whole bunch of area to work in, a whole bunch of freedom, and that's kind of what I do is people will say, well, a beer is supposed to be this way and this color and this, 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 this. And it's like, okay, so let's not make it that color. Let's not make that ABV, you know, take all the answers and question them, flip them, change them, make them your answers because those are other people's answers. Could not agree more. Jeff, thank you of course. for talking with us. Thank you for doing things your way. Thanks Jensen. And, I encourage other people to do the same. That's the whole reason I do it. So, and I know you're one of them. Thanks, man. Cheers.